What are you doing? Bam! Ty, come on. Try it out. What? All right. Bam! Oh, that does kind of feel good. Right? But why are you screaming it over and over? Because we just talked to Chris Langwolner, the creator of the Bam Nut. And he also happens to be the CEO of What If Foods. He's this food seasoning guru who had a chance encounter that led him to an absolutely magical plant, the Bambara nut, that can both grow in and regenerate dead soil. Oh, yeah. The Bam Nut guy. That was absolutely fascinating. And man, Chris is an awesome storyteller, brilliant scientist. And then fast forward what he built today and Bam Nut is in hundreds of grocery stores across America. What else did we talk about, Jacob? Yeah, we could blame into a few things. Number one, what is a good Dankin experiment? Number two, how many animals grains make up the majority of our diets? You'll be surprised here. And then number three, why has no one heard of the Bamna, including you, in the Western world? Now, I got to try a sample pack of these noodles and milks, and it was honestly super tasty. It's going to replace my daily ration of top ramen. And finally, I realized that what I learned in talking to Chris is that I'm actually saving the planet by eating these noodles. It's crazy. It really is, Jacob. And this guy, this story, this product, and this company are doing some amazing stuff. You got to stay tuned for this one. Bam! I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) Chris, welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to share a little bit of the story and uh, have a conversation with you folks. Love it. We can't wait to hear the story. I did want to say you're an inspiration. I'm finding you to be an inspiration through all the research we've done on you and what if foods over the past week. So I guess I just want to start off with a thanks on that because I don't know, whenever I go to the website and listen to these interviews with you, there's a couple of things that jump out. One, you're an optimistic person. And I like that you enjoy taking on this challenge of climate change that's going on. As Ty likes to put it, it's one of the most complex things anyone's tackling. And then two, you have a really nice marketing fire underneath you. Like, I can't tell you how many, I like the better, better, the regeneration, everything that I find on the website. I'm just like, yeah, I like that. It's like, I don't know if, you know, you came with that on your own or you have some great marketers, but I'm digging everything you're doing in terms of promoting what if foods. Well, thank you very much for the compliments here. Feels almost like I don't know how to, I deserve it. You know, <laughs> it's like unreal, but it is true. I think, you know, as you wake up every day in the morning and you look at your news feed, there is enough doom and gloom. There is enough negativity. There is enough. We can't do it at what if foods. What we really want to do is we want to show that by challenging your system and building a completely new system from scratch, it is possible to make change happening. However big the change is going to be, we don't know. I don't have the crystal ball. We can't really look into it and see how much impact we can generate. But what really motivates all of us is to go out there and feel the change on the ground rather than just endlessly talk about things and celebrate an agreement that has been crafted by someone somewhere for something. We are out there on the ground in the savannah of West Africa, as well as in the markets such as in America and speaking to folks such as yourselves on a day-to-day basis. And and that really gives us a lot of motivation, to be honest with you, because people think there's a strong desire for transparency and for action behind a brand. You know, too many times with marketing gimmicks and stories that are just fronting a brand that comes up with something that is just 
talked about a bit different, but the system underneath and behind not changed. That's not the case at Wadley Foods at all. We have changed it literally from the ground up, meaning we are going on degraded arable land and start the process with farming communities right there, right there where it matters, right there where farming land is being left behind and communities have been left behind and um, and then work with them, deploy our science, make these cool products that are tasting awesome with uh, folks like the, the retail market as well as distributors and ultimately the consumers out there. Nice, yeah. What if foods, you all have depth to it. It's not just these surface messages that sound good and you're creating connections, real connections. So, so I guess on that note, I want to ask you a question. What is a Gedanken experiment? And if there is one in mind that helps us grasp maybe how interconnected we are, but maybe we'll just start with what is a Gedanken experiment? What in the world is this? Particularly for me, you know, I have started this journey about 10, 15 years ago where in my little brain, I was really getting really, really upset and worried about the farming sort of industry leaving this much of arable land behind. By now, we have more than half of arable land being already degraded or is degrading at a speed unprecedented in history, 35 times faster than our records show. And that means that if you are a farmer somewhere, you probably look at having half of your arable land not productive anymore. It doesn't contribute to your income anymore. Or farming on that land has become so expensive that you can't make ends meet anymore. And that in a time where we still have population growth, where we have more and more folks entering the consumerism, so therefore more and more pressures on natural resources. And if you don't pivot away from that old system, how are we going to feed the world in 2030, 2040, 2050? has been a big, big challenge in my little mind 10, 15 years ago. And then as we came into 2015 and 2015, the United Nations launched the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And I was looking over them and I don't see a single SDG talking about agri-food. And I was thinking, mm. hang on a second, what's going on here? You know, one third of all greenhouse gases are being admitted by this industry. More than 70% of all water, freshwater reserves are being used by that industry. 2.6 billion people are making an income from agricultural activities. 75% of them are the poorest of the poor. And the stats go on and on and on. And I was thinking, how on earth have we forgotten about agri-food in the SDGs? Now, as you a little bit deeper, you can actually see that there's a common thread throughout all 17 SDGs, and that is agri-food. It touches literally each and every single one. So if you look at equality, if you look at justice, nothing will fall in place if agri-food doesn't get its act together. And I have not mentioned the obvious ones, which is hunger and so on and so forth. And then for me, what was really, really inspirational was SDG 15, life on land, because at the end of the day, humans are are animals that live on our land. And if we can't figure out as to how we bring agrobiodiversity back, we protect biodiversity, we stop degradation, we look at natural resources differently, we sequester rather than emit carbon, we shorten the water cycles, we stop digging out so much aquifer water and use it as irrigation water and stuff like that. I was then really, really inspired to basically say for me personally, and in my Gedanken model, it was SDG 15 became the mother SDG of them all. And hence, the mind journey really began then to basically say, so what can we do with science and technology as, an, as, a, as a company? 
to then look into what sort of crops can we grow on challenged and poor soils on degraded arable land. How can we use technology such as mobile phones to go out and connect with farming communities directly? How can we be a partner to them rather than just extracting their resources? And how can we then shorten and make, make uh, products that are really super exciting and taste nice and taste great? You know, how can we then encourage a consumer to come back and say, hey, what I've just tasted is great. I love it. And therefore, no harm for me going back and buy the second time, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time. And therefore, that was the journey. So my model was essentially to basically say, stop thinking linear, start thinking circular, Start thinking that there's a system underneath that basically connects in so many different aspects and in many more than in just one. Um, and that was my little journey towards who we are today. So is a Gedanken experiment a way of thinking? It's a different perspective on maybe the same thing? I think it is that ability, as Albert Einstein, who coined that term so famously, as Albert Einstein basically said, it is that ability to basically say, I've just learned something. I reflected upon it. I've learned something. And I'm doing things not in the same fashion as I've done it before, expecting different results. I'm challenging the system. And I am basing my next action on a new system thinking and a new system design. And if you allow yourself go towards that direction, which is, quite frankly, at the beginning, very uncomfortable because you're getting into a territory no has put a step into it yet, and it's really, really challenging at the beginning. But this is where frontiers are. This is where new territory can become, you know, and that is what it is. So to me, a Gedanken model is basically reflection and learning, adaptation, and allowing yourself to challenge systems. And that to me is, is, is the foundation of it all. Fascinating. Yeah. Learning about regenerative agriculture. Again, I learned about it two years ago. It's always It always challenges me mentally to be like, wait, we can capture carbon in the soil. Wait, what's in the soil? Oh my God, there's a lot of life. There's microbes. I'm like, it's almost like I'm shaping my own. And it's like, it takes me a little bit to be like, ah, this really has a huge effect on how I think about how I eat and even how I interact with the world. So like, I'm definitely feeling and picking up what you're, what you're putting down. You know, we notice you're, you're a traveler and you've lived in a lot of different places. And we also notice you're, you're a foodie. Does food and travel tie together for you? Does food and travel tie together? I have to say yes. As I just in the last week, I've been traveling back to my home village in Salzburg in Austria, where I visited my parents. And of course, one dives into those old flavor memories of grandmother's kitchen, mother's kitchen. Though I have to say, my mom is, is really challenged to cook for me because I'm a vegetarian for quite a long time. And uh, there's a lot of meat in our more recent culture in Europe. But she does a great job helping me out, finding these flavors that I'm so used to in vegetarian dishes. So I'm very grateful for that. And then as you travel down into the Middle East, where I am right now, you have a Mediterranean diet that is literally based on a lot of lentils anyway, a lot of legumes being cooked in your hummus and what have you. And there's a lot of, you know, salads on the, in the diet. So it's a very, very healthy diet. As you probably have heard, the blue zones, this is the diet here in the Mediterranean, the blue zone diet. So I really, really enjoy it. In a couple of weeks, next week, I'm going to be in West Africa. Dad's culture is going to be different again. But I have to say it's a bit sad down there because they don't have access anymore to their ancient and traditional foods. So they are relying too much on starch crops and therefore are looking at hidden hungers. They're deprived from a proper diet and diversified diet. 
So every time I go there, I'm encouraging them to start cooking the Bambara groundnut again and, and come up with the use that they have used and uh, throughout the thousands of years they have been cultivating that particular crop. So yes, traveling goes with culture, goes with diet, goes with different food experiences. But it is also in that context, it is kind of devastating to understand that globally we rely on only 12 crops and five animals to more than 75% of all food that is being consumed. Now, that is insane because we know of more than 30,000 species being good for human consumption. And just imagine a world where we would be going back and feast upon a diet that includes 350 different species from close by neighboring you, but from all over the world. Just imagine the sort of conversations we could have on a dinner table with our spouses or our children. All of a sudden, you can say, hey, a center discussion point at a dinner table could be that particular new crop that we are just experiencing. Just imagine the sounds, the flavors, the textures, the conversations that we would have. All of a sudden, culture would come back into the dinner table. We don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore because we rely on 12 crops and five animals. Very boring in terms of language. that, we And that's something I really, truly enjoy. Start spreading that message of saying, Hey, how would the world look like if we would stop just focusing on these 12 crops and five animals that have done so much harm to the planetary health and indeed human health because of 2.4 billion people are currently overweight and obese on that planet. And by and large, we are serving the wrong foods. Let me ask you, how did, so you said you're going to West Africa and you felt it was a little bit sad that they've lost a little bit of their ancient foods. Why? What what has happened there that has caused them to fall into this lack of biodiversity that they used to have? It's a very, very good question. But unfortunately, the answer is not unique to West Africa. The answer applies to literally all farming communities all over the world. And the answer is embedded in the 12 crops and five animals that I've been referring to. What's the underlying issue? The underlying issue is that if you are a farmer, and as Dr. Roy Steiner from the Rockefeller Foundation has told me a few years ago, nowhere in the world are we producing enough legumes, neither do we consume enough legumes. It is that challenge that if we have, we've built ourselves a system that did very well after the Second World War and got plentiful calories into hungry stomachs after the war, that system was perfectly fit for that challenge. But it relies today on just 12 crops and five animals. So what that means to a farmer is, that however desperate his or her land is for a legume to help restore and regenerate the production capacity of the arable land, to bring life back into the soil, to sequester carbon, to fix nitrogen through that sort of crops that we would use, however desperate these farming communities are for these crops, they just don't have a market for the produce. They can't sell it. So therefore, if they would use an intercrop or crop potato with things like the Bambara groundnut, they would do it for charity's sake. And that's not possible anymore because farmers all over the world are just finding it extremely difficult to make, to make financial ends meet. And I don't know whether or not you have just heard the very recent news that in Germany, millions of farmers are on the street in Berlin, the tractors are being parked on major uh, roads 
and they're protesting. They're protesting of basically saying enough is enough. We can't make ends meet anymore, you know? And to me, in my mind, and this is in the Western world, this is in Berlin, right? This is in the in the heart of, of Europe. And it was last year in, in Amsterdam as well. In my world, we have established ourselves a food system that relies on so few crops, whereby the price finding mechanism uh, is not anymore done with the farming communities directly. It is done by some somebody somewhere in Ivory Tower, somewhere in London or Chicago, where these products, these commodities are being traded. And any farmer sits on the shorter end of the stick and is a price taker. And then it's left to you, you whether or not you can farm within your financial means or not. And unfortunately, it doesn't work anymore like that. So you see more and more desperate voices out there, like right now in Germany, for a system change to come about. And however sad that is, it is a great opportunity. And I think what if it's well positioned to be of an offer of an opportunity to some of these farmers to tap into a new system and a new way of farming, which is actually an old way. It's not a new way. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's like you're going back to the old way. So I hear so many interconnections here as I'm, I'm listening to you talk. And there's this love of food, there's this love of the earth and this lack of biodiversity. How did you start to tie all these things together about your care for the climate? And so there's definitely amazing tie-ins. I just heard you say about the replenishing of the earth. Where did your interest, I would say, in or challenge or question, you mentioned SDG 15 as your mother of all, um, you know, sustainability goals. Where did this interest start for you, Chris? I guess our Gedankenmodelle in our brains they are formed and structured in very early days in our childhood. And what has happened to me is because I grew up essentially on a regenerative farm embedded in a small village setting with about 700 people around, I vividly, I, I really vividly remember my grandfather being a huge cornerstone in that community. Not only was he the butcher of the of the village, but he was also a big scale farmer. We had our own milk, we made our own butter, we made a little bit of cheese with our butchery, and we had a huge restaurant right in the village setting next to the church. Oh wow! So he was a very very important uh, sort of pillar to the community, and unfortunately he passed away a long time ago. But I was old enough to understand that he kept on saying to us grandchildren leave this world a better place than how you found it. He kept on saying that to the grandchildren. And to be honest with you folks, you know, you say, you hear your grandfather say that and you kind of say, yes, yes, yes. But you don't know what it really means. It took me 40 years. It took me about 40 years to really figure out that my grandfather's definition of regeneration was to leave this world a better place than how you found it. And I draw a lot of my personal motivation and inspiration from that little sentence that I still have the voice of my grandfather in, in sitting in my ear, basically keep on telling us this mantra over and over and over again, just basically saying that the next generation that comes about should not forget that there is a responsibility with the next generation to leave this world a better place. You know, as some of the tribes say, particularly in the Middle East, we have not been given land by our ancestors. We are borrowing the land from our future generations. And that is a totally different mind change. If you actually approach challenges like this, you have an obligation to leave something behind that is better off than you found it before, rather than taking something 
and exploiting it until it is written off in your balance sheet, and then you start all over again, which is old system thinking. New system thinking is doing it to build something that is better for future generations, which is not is the opposite of depreciation, if you know what I mean. Uh, that to me occurred, uh, as I said, about 40, it took me 40 years to get my head around uh, that sort of thing. But more specifically to your question around climate change and how this came about, the voluntary climate market is, is about 20, 25 years about already. And I grew up as a food scientist. I have a diploma in agriculture. I have a bachelor's in food science. And then I did a master's in, in, in finance and marketing. But the reason I mentioned this is because innately in me, I am a scientist. I like data. I like making decisions based on data. And probably 10 years ago or so, uh, for sure, I was becoming really frustrated by going to these climate change conferences where people are talking about this many greenhouse gases, that many milligrams, and so on and so forth. And I kept on seeing the same slides with worse data over and over and over again. And what that meant to me was that, hang on a second, if somebody tells you that there's a carbon sequestration tool out there or project out there, and there is somebody buying the carbon, but overall the data is becoming worse, then it doesn't work, right? <laughs> it's simple. Just right. yeah. We're making our planet hotter and hotter and hotter. So I really, really got frustrated with that. And quite frankly, I, I didn't want to even get anywhere close to the data, sorry, the climate debate with regards to what it foods at all, because one should not believe that doing the same things over and over get, gets a different results. You know, the data speaks for itself. But we found our way in what it foods to resolve that challenge by basically looking at what's left behind, by looking at what's, what is needed for that, what's left behind, the degraded arable land. Start doing that with communities that need a helping hand, that need a helping hand, particularly in today's day and age where migration is a huge issue. Otherwise, if we don't find solutions for them, we are setting them in motion and they become refugees. They knock on the borders and they want to have their visas. And so all of that is connected to it as well. At the end of the day, and hopefully in our conversation a little bit later on, I, I can share as to what is in our mind with regards to becoming or pivoting a system today is, is emitting to essentially sequestering. And if you just logically think for a second, like in our planet, we have three major carbon storage facilities, the ocean, the trees, and the soil. These are the big ones. And if we take care of them, and if we nurture them, and if we rebuild their sequestration capacities, then we can move needles hugely. And I think the call of our is to really do that on large scale. Love it. Wow. Big. Yeah, that was big. I never heard it put so so simply, but so clearly at the same time. So the three mediums, you said oceans, trees, and soil. So we really need to take care of the soil. You're, you, you're passionate about the soil. You know a lot about soil. How did you stumble upon the BAMNet and what makes it super duper special? Oh, thanks for that question. That helps me explain um, a little bit about what, what it foods really does. The Babara ground nut, I found, I mean... I, Honestly, it was an elevator pitch, okay? So in my little world about 10 years ago, 2015, I already mentioned, I got really annoyed with SDGs. There's no one for agri-food. And then I really found out, oh gosh, you know, it touches all of them. And then my strife towards 2015 by really saying, you know, degraded arable land is a huge thing. Agrobiodiversity loss is a huge thing. You know, there's another one. Just let me throw that curveball in here, if I may. You know, when I made my driver license in Austria, I was 18, of course. In Austria, you can only do it with 18. So I made my driver license. 
And way back then, if I drove a car from my village to Salzburg, I had to stop at a petrol pump cleaning my windscreen from the insects. How many times do you stop today to clean your windscreen from insects? They're all gone. They're all gone. Not that our cars are so more, so more efficient avoiding the insects. They are annoying. Right, right. Anywhere, right? <laughs> so the agrobiodiversity loss is everywhere in the world. But back to the question. So how did I find Bambara? It was really the, the sort of situation where I went to a conference in Jakarta, in Asia, where I run into a scientist who spent essentially 30 years of his professional career researching on underutilized crops. Crops that he knew from his research work would do would contribute to a system change by integrating them into production processes at farms so that there can be crop rotation, there can be nitrogen fixing using legumes, blah, 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 and all the rest of it. And in the conversation I had with him in the elevator, he put a little brochure and a one-pager into my backpack, and I started it a little bit later on when I was on my way to the airport in Jakarta. There have enough time, the traffic is horrible in Jakarta. And I read all about the Pampara groundnut originates. And by the way, I have a little while here with some of an example here. For those who are listening to us on probably YouTube and can see it, uh, this is how the Pampara groundnut looks like. They look like chocolate and vanilla covered cocoa beans. <laughs> <laughs> so the Pampara groundnut essentially, from its origin, is from a place that today is Mali. It is basically first time, let me say, cultivated by the Bambara tribe, by a folk that speak a language called Bambara. And therefore, West Africans have referred to that particular bean, because botanically the Bambara groundnut is a bean, it's a legume. The folks around West Africa referred to the Bambara groundnut as the bean that comes from the Bambara tribe. And that's how it basically gotten its name. Now, if you look a little bit on the map, you will see that the origin of the Bambara groundnut is the Sahel. The Sahel is just south of the Sahara. Uh, it's stem hot, it's sandy soils, and it spares water. So only crops that can strive and can grow well with limited resources in terms of sandy soils and water, strive in these sort of climatic conditions. Now, as we have, as we live on a hotter planet, as climate change makes it more difficult, the what's today Sahel being up there, Burkina Faso, Mali, that sort of northern parts of Ghana and northern parts of Nigeria, may one would argue those sort of areas are getting drier and drier and hotter and hotter because of climate change. So therefore, growing conditions for the Bambara groundnut become more relevant for those sort of territories where the climate change has taken over already and encroaches more and more into these sort of agricultural lands. On top of it all, over the last, let me say, 100 years or so, we have incentivized farming communities globally to fetch this, to grow these 12 crops and farm these 12 animals everywhere in the world. Whether or not these 12 crops, like corn, for example, is native to that particular region or not, is immaterial. And therefore, what has happened is that these crops that are not really native and have been then grown monocultural systems for decades have looted the land to such a great extent 
that the production capacity of that land and the health of the land and the life within it has essentially been lost. And I saw this when I was introduced to the Bambara groundnut. I had this background knowledge with me, and I saw that the Bambara groundnut can potentially become a legume that can help us grow on this degraded arable land with farming communities that don't have access to other markets anyway anymore. And the crops that we ask them to grow are falling off the cliff because the soil health is just not strong enough anymore. So all in all to me, all of a sudden, so many loose ends came together when I saw on paper what the Pampara groundnut offers. In short, it's a legume that helps fix nitrogen. It grows on degraded arable land, on sandy poor soils. It grows with very, very little water to that extent that, for example, one liter, one pack of our milk that you can find in retailer, in retail stores, in supermarket stores in the U.S., one such pack requires only 15 packs of water behind it, 15 liters, whereas, for example, almond milk will use about 370 or more liters of water. So it's a very, very source-efficient means. Plus, if you are a farmer that has been left behind with a parcel of land with 50% of arable land that he has got, that is not productive anymore, any income you derive from that parcel of land is an additional income to your farm. So hence they say, hooray, let's do it. You know, We have cheering farmers to basically say, yes, we would love to do it because it helps us regenerate the degraded arable land and it gives us an income from land that is not productive anymore. And, and therefore that was for me some sort of originally the thinking model. And then as we moved out of the pandemic, of course, we established the fact and refined the model and designed the system in such a way that today we are working with more than 7,000 farmers. We are impacting more than 70,000 lives because one farmer has a household with about an average of 10 people. And we are working with them uh, this year. Um, we are celebrating harvest right now and we are buying the beans back from them. And uh, it's always a happy time right now as we are speaking. And then to throw another one in, if I may, uh, I know I'm talking too much and if just interrupt me. If no, no, not at all. That's, this is what you're here for. <laughs> There's another one because typically the Pampara groundnut survived all the pressures of the commercial crops because women in West Africa grew it for their domestic consumption, for their household consumption, because the Pampara groundnut is known as a complete crop as well. That means it has a fantastic macronutrient composition, 20 to 25% of protein, complex carbohydrates and fatty acids, so oils that are of good quality, about seven to 9%. So it's a complete food that has all essential amino acids as well. So you can actually live up on the Pampara groundnut with the need to supplement it with anything else if you run out of food. And that is exactly the reason these women kept on growing it in the back garden essentially, kept on growing it for their domestic uh, use. Because if they were running out of cash and they couldn't afford any more other cash crops to be bought, or they were running out of food because of the industry has bought everything away from them, then they were falling back on the Pampara groundnut. So the Pampara groundnut was known in that region. And the women innately have the knowledge and the wisdom as to how to grow. And I'm so proud of the system that we have built because Today, we are partnering with more than 50% of women farmers. And buckle up, 
some of these women farmers have for the first time ever been allotted farming land from the chief and make for the first time ever money from their own farming activities. That is changing an entire community setting. You know, it's just wonderful to see these women cash in their hand and all of a sudden look at it and can say, now I can look after my children. I can do this and this and this and that and one thing or the other. It's so powerful. Uh, it is so motivating. It gives me chills the moment I speak about it. Yeah, really. That's incredible. It changes social yeah. dynamic. I mean, you definitely have found, I mean, I don't want to call it the perfect storm because it's not a storm on the negative side. It's on the positive side. But man, in a pamphlet in your backpack <laughs> from a scientist that you met at a convention, it seemed like you started a snowball here that uh, definitely answers a, a lot of things. All right. So we're obviously one of the things that we focus on here at Climate Mayhem is not just doing good for the planet and for the people, but doing that and and doing that and you know with with making money, right? But one of the interesting things that you've brought up both personally as well as on your website and in other talks is you talk a lot about regenerative agriculture. You just walked us through some of the powers of what that can do, but you also talk about this concept of regenerative capitalism and working this way. I mean, I heard the capitalistic part here. You're going to pay for a harvest in the next few weeks or next week, which is awesome, which is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the start of capitalism, right? Like I got, I grew something, I can sell it to someone else. And, and, and that's where this all started. What is regenerative capitalism? And what does this have in common with what you're doing with the BAM nut? It's a very, very interesting question. And thanks for getting the conversation towards that, because I think it is super, super important. Look, the existing system and the old system doesn't account for the true cost of what we produce. In other words, whether or not a product is emitting carbon, we are not factoring in the cost of a ton of carbon, be it $100 or whatever it might be. It's not being accounted for. It is not being accounted for whether or not there are runoffs on animal farms. There is not accounted for as to how much water is being used other than in the electricity bill for irrigation. Uh, but the actual use of natural resources is not being accounted for. And that's the current system. And on top of it, you know, we are busy distributing taxpayers' money into subsidies, making this old systems work. And I've mentioned before this entire uprise of the farming community in Germany that's happening right now. In large part, it is because Germany is revoking some of the subsidies and the farming community say, hey, if you do this now, we don't know anymore how to make ends meet. So there is this old system that essentially is so complex and complicated with regards to subsidies and blah, 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 and, and how it's being working and so on and so forth. But what it really forgets is the externalities. It is It forgets as to how much extractive actions have been undertaken versus in a regenerative setting, how much life has been built, life in the soils, life in the community, life in our bellies. Jakob just had a had a good sip of the bamna milk and with every bamna milk, he's actually drinking a prebiotic fiber that is helping his gut to basically become healthy and stay healthy and promote healthy gut balances. So all of that in a regenerative capital system is being embedded in decision-making. So when we are making decisions, we are saying, do we really need all of this middleman that connect us from A to B? Or can we unleash modern technology to connect with these farming communities directly? 
and therefore stay connected as close as we possibly can to farming communities and use this what otherwise are profits within the supply chain that are being somewhere siphoned off, blah, 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 or are not being accounted for, can we use that in order to put that money behind regenerative activities, such as growing the Bavara ground on degraded arable land? So the concept of regenerative capitalism is being coined by uh, John Fullerton. He runs the uh, Capital Institute out of New York. And if visitors have, uh, have more interest to to dig deeper into the regenerative capitalism, uh, most welcome to have a look in, into it. Or if you guys can go out and invite him on a, on a podcast, please go and, and, and do so. For me, what is really embedded in all of it is to basically say, look, regenerative capitalism requires one to have a different system being set up, just pivoting an existing system from extractive capitalism to regenerative capitalism won't be possible, not in an agricultural system. So. It allowed us, because we were thinking systematically right from the get-go, it allowed us to adopt this philosophy right from the get-go, to basically say, can we start re uh, regenerating degraded soils? Can we do that with a legume that helps us replace the entire use of fertilizing? Because naturally, the Barbara groundnut as a legume can fix nitrogen, and therefore we don't need synthetic fertilizer in following years. But the opposite is true. Uh, it actually prepares for following crops. The soil can be basically also look at to can we look at using the agri waste that otherwise is being rotting in farms or or basically is burned off at some point at farming communities. Can we actually bring this and make biochar out of it? And if so, can we harvest that energy for production purposes of our foods? All of that thinking model is all of a sudden possible. And then you come in to basically say, hey, I'm doing good with, for example, in future, that's our journey. We will get there sooner or later on scale. Can we actually make manufacture biochar on scale, harvest the electricity in order to make our foods to start with? So that would look like to basically then say, I'm taking the sort of shells of the Bambara groundnut, I make biochar, that biochar, that process is exothermic. That means you can actually harvest the energy to make this job happening, which is conversion of the beans into the flour. And if that's going to happen, all of a sudden, I'm right deep into a capitalistic thinking. How can I minimize my electricity bill? Well, I can do that by utilizing this exothermic process. And as a result, almost in a capitalistic thinking, as a byproduct, I have biochar that helps the farming community to basically restore and turbocharge the restoration of degraded arable land on a turbocharger. And all of a sudden you have a system that is regenerative, yet you are driven by capitalistic thinking. How can I generate electricity where I otherwise don't have access to? You know, so that's sort of, or you pay the middleman or a utility supplier. So you're today, you are taking the, what it looks like the shells, the husks of the, the Bambara nut, and you're repurposing that and turning it into biochar and then trying to find ways to power your, either your plants or your, or the farmer's uh, production. Are you doing that today? We are doing it today, but on tiny, small scale. We are not doing it on, on large scale yet. So let me, let, if, if I, maybe it's a, a Clever mayhem, yeah, it, we should actually talk about that. So in 2022 was a pivotal year, everything related to biochar. Biochar, for the listeners that are listening into, biochar is nothing but 
charcoal, but made from plant materials and not wood. And it's an ancient technology. It has been discovered by folks in the Amazon region, probably, I believe, some 5,000 years ago. We still find those biochar remains in the soils in the Amazon region today. So therefore, we still are busy trying to understand scientifically the isotopes and the structures. How is that possible to be found so long after it has been basically carbon has been sequestered by these folks uh, into the soil? But that is a different sort of um, uh, discussion altogether. But what has happened in 2022 is that in Europe, the European Biochar under the Ithaca uh, Institute, they came together, basically a whole bunch of universities came together and basically said, can we derive a quality standard of biochar that can then be considered as a sequestration methodology for taking carbon and removing carbon from the atmosphere? And that has happened in 2022 when the EPC was published. The EPC is the European Biochar uh, Certificate that got published. And with its publication, uh, folks like Puro.Earth and Vera and others jumped on it and basically adopted this particular methodology, making biochar as a means to sequester and remove carbon from the atmosphere. So what that means for a, for a, for a person like me is all of a sudden I have a process and I have data points and I have checkpoints and I have a quality requirement that helps me understand a, whether or not I have removed carbon from the atmosphere, and B, how long I'm removing this carbon from the atmosphere to start with. Am I doing this just for a few weeks, for a few months, years, decades, a millennia, or even longer than that? And in 2022, the research is going still on, and I've alluded to it a little bit by mentioning that people and scientists are busy trying to understand what makes biochar biochar and gives us that ultra-long durability in terms of removing uh, carbon. And what has happened is that this particular black structured carbon thing that literally looks like carbon, what has happened is that specifications have been derived. And if you hit a hydrogen to carbon ratio within your biochar that is less than 0 0.7, then you qualify for that particular specification within that EPC, as it is called. But more so, if your process to biochar is designed in such a way that it gives you a ratio below 0 0.4, then 75% of the biochar's carbon can be considered to be sequestered for more than 1,000 years to come because of the chemical structure that is being formed. That all happened 2022, 2023. And all of a sudden, for my little brain, that topic of biochar became interesting because of three reasons. Number one, biochar is a fantastic soil remediation technique. It helps farmers to bring structure, organic structure, back into soil and retain moisture, retain nutrients, because biochar acts like a sponge in the soil. It has super open structures. And it basically is like a sponge clinging on to water and the tiny small roots of plants can access that water and take it out as and when they need it. So biochar, number one reason, fantastic to restore production capacity of degraded arable land. You can think of it as turbocharging it. Number two, for an 
in a capitalist capitalistic thinking, it helped me understand, oh, hang on a second, biochar made on large scale is an exothermic process. It means that about two thirds of the heat that is being unleashed in the process can be, can be repurposed and used somewhere else. One third of the heat is required to keep the process called pyrolysis at steady state. So it keeps on basically keeps on moving forward as we go. So this two thirds of thermal energy all of a sudden gave us the idea to look at a technical feasibility study last year. We completed that in the second half of last year. We conducted a technical feasibility study to basically say, how much of biochar do we have to make in order to produce enough of thermal energy to this job, to convert the beans into powder? Because there needs to be a certain ratio that needs to fall in place. Otherwise, you're overproducing electricity or you're underproducing. Neither of the two is desirable, right? And that was a huge job that we did in 2023. The study was conducted and done by an engineering company in the UK. And uh, it is technically feasible. It is operationally feasible. And as we move towards 24 and 25, that is our next big thing for Wadi Foods to basically then say, look, now we have, now we are working with 7,000 farmers already. And by the way, 20,000 farmers are on our waiting list. People want to join our program. Um, so we have 7,000 farmers. We know their telephone numbers. We know their faces. We know their families. Uh, they grow the beans for us. We can actually then look at bringing these, um, these, these Bambara shells to our factory and collect other agri-waste as we, as we find it and as we need it, and then start the pyrolysis process in order to generate the electricity that we need for the factory. And then, therefore, you can actually start thinking to locate the factory into a place where it is required rather than locating the factory where you have access to utility grids, which may not be where it is required, right? So you're thinking about and take it to an off-grid situation where I bought distances to my farming community. And that's where I want to get yourself you're self-sustaining at that Absolutely. point. Absolutely. That right there, Chris, that sounded like yet a masterclass on regenerative capitalism, Gandankan thinking, as well as learning about carbon sequestration of, of biochar. So I really appreciate those last few minutes. That was amazing. And this is one, you know, so I'm a guy, I've actually made a couple of food products in my, my, my previous lives as well. And one of the things that I've always wondered about, and, and you've mentioned this a couple of times about figuring out ways to think uh, differently about the way this product is used, why it's needed, but also how it's made. And you talk about removing the middleman, right? Or, or, or changing who is uh, getting paid in the middle, et cetera. So I have to ask a little bit about the logistics of this, uh, of the BAM nut and, and your products, right? So you obviously, they're grown in West Africa primarily today, but I know that you have some product all over the world, some product in the U.S., you know, you're, you're aiming for Europe, uh, Asia, et cetera. What are the other things or what's the challenges right now in your logistics and how else are you thinking about this? Thanks for that question, because some consumers quite rightly are a little bit worried about our West Africa production of the beans and then selling it in the U.S. And there is this obvious transportation issue and the carbon that is being related to that of concern. But I think in Wadi Foods, we are thinking of and have a promise 
of sequestering our lifetime carbon footprint. And that will basically mean since inception of the organization and since birth, giving birth to the products, all emissions are going to be sequestered by 2040 um, using biogiant technique. So it's a lifetime carbon. So we go beyond net zero. So therefore, therefore, the transportation in between is something we will take care of in future uh, and taking care of or, or care of it already. So the reason we are where we are is the following. When we move out of the pandemic, what has happened was that co-packers, particularly in the United States, could not fulfill their orders. And they didn't could not fulfill their orders. They had a backlog of orders that they have unfulfilled. And hence, they didn't welcome any new brand. They didn't welcome any new product. And so for us to get going after the pandemic in the United States, we took a conscious decision to basically... And this is just because of the challenges. Sorry, this is just because of the challenges of the pandemic itself. Well, as you may remember, we had huge traffic jams in ports, like in Long Beach, for example. We had like thousands of ships waiting to come on shore and unload their cargo. You know, for the first ever container we shipped from Asia into the U.S. took four months. Typically, it's five weeks. Oh, my goodness. Right? So during those days, it was there was a horrible supply chain with regards to the ingredients these co-packers would need uh, in order to fulfill their orders. So what has happened was that we took a conscious decision to basically say, look, we are a new kid on the block. We are not talking about thousands of containers. You're talking about few containers, a few, right? If we are good in the first year, we're talking about 20 containers. If you're not good, we're talking about 10 containers. Now, in the larger scheme of things, that is literally nothing. But what we did is consciously we said, let us import finished goods into the United States so that we can get started so that we actually start showing our product to retailers, to distributors. Like, Ty, I know that you have, that you know, the KHEs and the UNFIs of the world. And it was basically for us a very, very important uh, step in our development, in our, in our business development in the United States to be able to have the product onshore and to do it. So, but of course, it is not a desire. Something, somebody like me, who are thinking about the stuff that I'm thinking about, it is not desirable to ship finished goods from Asia into the United States. So what's happening this year, and I have to say I'm super proud of my R&D team, as well as other colleagues in our supply chain, because what they have figured out is essentially two co-packers, one is in California, other one is in Canada, that is going to help us to basically make latte. They're going to launch them, so I'm giving something away now. I probably shouldn't have, but it bumped around. We're gonna we're gonna launch lattes that are gonna be made in California, and our milks are gonna be made in in Canada. So what we are what we hence therefore stop doing is stop shipping finished goods, finished milk, and start shipping our ingredient. What that means is for for every ten containers of finished otherwise finished goods to be shipped, we are saving nine containers because we only need one container of ingredients to be shipped into the US. So there's a huge logistical saving there in terms of time complexity, but also, of course, carbon footprint. And super, super exciting because it opens up a portfolio development. It opens up much more flexibility if you produce regionally and so on and so forth. So 2024 is super exciting with regards to that. So we are really looking forward to that. Chris, just so I understand that, I think it'll help the audience understand it too. So this is like maybe an equivalent. So if so the latte is, it's like, Shipping over would be equivalent to, so instead of me shipping 10 containers of Coca-Cola cans, 
I could just ship one container of Coca-Cola syrup. And so this is kind of an equivalent situation that's going on to, to correct, then create correct. these lattes exactly. in a B2B and sense. And the milks. And, and, all and, and the milks. And we're gotcha. Gonna, we're going to extend and our the milks. milks. We're going to have flavored milks as well as creamers to be launched in 24. Super exciting. But that is all now possible because we can onshore the production goods in, in North America. And that is super important. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense either. So for us, for me as an entrepreneur, coming out of the pandemic, we kind of had to make ends meet with the means and resources available. And that meant we have to import finished goods to get started. But as we now move into a post-pandemic world that is easing the supply chains a bit, now it's a time where also the co-packers start accommodating us and give us space and time and capacity. And now for us, it is high time to actually switch that model and optimize our supply chain. It's fluid, yeah. Chris, it seems like you're, I imagine you're always bursting with ideas. So what's keeping you up at night right now? And that could be a challenge that you're working through. It could be a new idea that you're brewing on. Uh, What's keeping me up at night? Many things, many operational things keep me up at night. I know that some parts of the world need the solution that we have built. And I can't, I, I'm, I'm restless because I want to have it done tomorrow. <laughs> I want to build it tomorrow <laughs> and not wait another one year or another two years and so on and so forth. I can't tell you how frustrating it was to know that it's an inefficient supply chain and now we are going to be much more efficient. But so that's, of course, that's what's keeping me up at night. But on a larger thinking, what really bothers me a lot is, and this is nothing to do with Wadi Foods, that is just Chris speaking, is that bloody massive divide that we are seeing all over the world. The divide into the left and the right, into the believers and non-believers, into the ups and downs. And rather than coming together as a, as a one humanity to basically say, look, folks, we are living in a pivotal moment where some technologies need to be unleashed. Things have to change if we want to step up to the plate and listen to the mantra and fulfill the mantra my grandfather told me to leave this world a better place for future generations to have a planet to be uh, inhabitable for them. And that really, really bothers me. In 2024, we're going into a year where many, many elections are all over the world and we're going to see how humanity is going to ultimately vote. You know, everybody knows the US is going to go through a challenging year, but beyond that, Europe is going through a challenging year and many, many other countries. So, and that really, really bothers me. I don't want to make this political. I'm not, I'm concerned about politics, but I'm not a political person. But what really bothers me is that I see so many tremendous opportunities within this regenerative capitalism. But to me, it is just not plausible and not logic to forego these possibilities that are unfolding in front of us, to build a much better us in future rather than keep on clinging onto a system that was right after the wars, after the world wars. Then it was the right thing to do. But hang on, folks, there's something we need in the 21st century, and that is not the same thing that we have done in the 20th century. So let's, let's get together and build something that is much more powerful to resolve some of the world's biggest challenges. And I'm not talking about artificial intelligence because I don't understand it. But in my little world, in agriculture and food, I know degraded arable land, I know 
a carbon footprint and a water footprint, and I know farming community well-being and consumer well-being. And it, it's doable. And that's something that really makes me restless. Basically say, how can we do this much, much faster? So yeah, regenerative capitalism needs to be a foundational agreement, you know, regardless of who's going to come into power or who's uh, debating about what the climate change is a thing or not. And then I guess it makes sense of why you try to market to a Gen Z population, because it seems like if there is anywhere a consensus, at least in America, on the big climate problem that we're in, it's among almost every Gen Z that you speak You're with. You're right. Is that right? In our experience, essentially, there's a common denominator about the youth, uh, among the youth. And that is basically saying climate change is real, period. No debate, no argument. And then the opinions divide again and basically say, we want to see it in this direction, we want to see it in that direction. And to me, it is just a beautiful debate to have, to have because if you just look at the energy grid and the energy supply today, it is basically a centralized system distributed to many. Whereas I think in future, we will have many more solutions on a regional basis that then cater to communities in that particular region. And with that, tremendous new capitalistic opportunities come about, don't they? There's just something new coming about, right? And in that way, there's just a fantastic opportunity to have these debates going on. And, and I think uh, back to your point here, I think, yes, the youth, uh, starting from the young millennials and the Gen Zs, we must not forget that they are the first generation that grew up essentially with sustainability being taught in kindergarten. So they are not on digital natives, but they are also, I would say, sustainable natives. They are basically, because of that, they sniff through the bullshit immediately. They know exactly what is yes and what isn't. I personally love it. And as we then think about this young generation come into casting their votes, not only politically, but also as a consumer in supermarkets, right? Every purchasing decision that they're making is casting a vote for something that either is regenerative or extractive. I think the figure was like 54 million Gen Zs are entering the job market by 2030 in the United States. So there is a new population that is entering the voting system, as I alluded before, not only voting in terms of a ballot in a political meaning, but also with their own money that they have earned, spending for it uh, in supermarkets, essentially. And I think we will see change come about. And I'm looking forward. I'm positive by 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 nature. And um, yeah, but that really is something that bothers me a lot. I identify yeah. with that too. Yeah, definitely. Totally. I can tell that you're positive though, because even when you're, it's what's keeping you up at night. What I heard you say was there's so much opportunity. And so you don't just see it as a negative, which I appreciate. And I just have to say that, Chris, like having worked with a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and visionaries myself and and always wanting to support them, man, you have all the traits. You have this growth mindset with all these great innovative thoughts. You're always thinking about the next big thing. Um, you also have the impatience, which I love it. I, some of the best entrepreneurs I've ever worked with are just impatient. They want it all done yesterday, regardless of how hard or how big it might be. So I, I absolutely appreciate that. I think you're on to big things. We've obviously covered a ton of topics here. I want to just think of like the big global thing. You, you've touched on this a bit. And so we may know your answer. But just in case, when you think about climate change and the next thing that has to happen in climate action or the sustainability movement, in your mind, what's going to be the next big step change that we might see in the next one, five, 10 years? Actions. Enough presentations, enough debates. Love it. 
It's just action, action up on what we know. Man, we are living in, we are living in a world where man is so intelligent. The amount of knowledge we have is unprecedented. We never had access to so much knowledge, milliseconds, and we are debating. Just bloody get out there yeah. and act upon new things. Do it regeneratively. Yeah. <laughs> Simple as yeah. that, you know. So I could make that more intelligent, but I, I honestly think... No, I love it. I honestly think the last 20, 30 years have shown us that there are... Just look at, for example, something totally different. There's another Gedankenmodell that just came about in a conversation I've had with my, with my son. If you, if you think about it, there are combustion engines running all over the world, and probably there are 150 years now, and if you think about probably some hundred or a thousand companies throughout history have worked up on uh, combustion engines and probably tens of thousands of engineers have finitely engineered the combustion engine. Now, batteries are still on version one, probably <laughs> for the last 30 years. <laughs> Let's get our brain power together and resolve the storage of energy challenge. Because if we do that, we resolve so many uh, other challenges that go beyond the food, right? So I'm just saying that the brain power that is behind combustion engines in the 21st century will be unleashed on the brain power. And that brain power will be used for things like storage of, of, of energy and uh, a better version will come about and a much more progressive world come about and um, a less polluting industry will come about. And, uh, and I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, I love it. I, I think it was so it was so uh, powerful because it was so simple. <laughs> You're like action. Let's just do stuff and try stuff. And I I absolutely love that. I think uh, that's the best answer I've I've heard yet. We've asked this question a number of times, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, we've we, this has been amazing, Chris. Uh, Jacob, I think we're at time. We have a fun little thing uh, that we do at the end yeah. here. So, Chris, hold on. Here we All go. Right. All right. So Chris, if, if you're ready, we're going to do something called rapid mayhem questions. So I'm going to ask you a, a few questions. I'm going to ask you them quick. I'm going to try to stump you and they're all going to be true or false questions. And they're going to be in the regenerative agriculture space. So you might end up getting some of these, but pretend I'm Regis. You're a contestant on who wants to be a millionaire and uh, listen closely. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. All right. True or false. In drought years, yields of regenerative crops are consistently higher. In the Rodal Institute's long-running farming system trial, organic corn yielded 28 to 34% higher than conventional. Totally. Absolutely. Biologically, systems will take care. Oh, yes. Nice. All right. Correct. Correct. Yes. All right. Very nice. All right. Number two, each additional percentage of carbon in the soil captured using regenerative agriculture is considered equivalent to 200 to $400 of fertilizer stored beneath it. I would not know the statistics behind that, but for sure it resonates with me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm going to take that as a, as a true. Even higher. I didn't okay. know that. It's actually false because it's even higher. Uh, that that dollar see, amount is 300 It's tricky, Chris. You got to watch it. He's a little tricky with this wording. <laughs> wow. So I reread the regenerative agriculture chapter and draw down the, the the book. And and that was the that was the one quote that I highlighted. And I really had to stare at it a lot to be like, is that that's huge. I mean that's huge. 
that's a lot of value right there of, of what's going on. I guess to your point about biochar and just nitrogen and just the fueling the soil, like really feeding the soil, not just feeding ourselves, right? Yes, yes. All right, and then number three, the microbes on earth would outnumber all of the other flora and fauna on earth if you weighed them and if you counted them, true or false? So on our body, we have about 85% of foreign cells we carry around. That's right, yeah. But whether or not they are weighing more than our dense bones is something that I would not know. Just in regards to the flora and fauna on Earth, not in regards to human weight. Yeah. 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 But flora and fauna, there are elephants out there that have even bigger bones and more cults in there than, than, than we are. So it's an interesting question. So by in terms of absolute numbers, absolutely true. Uh, in terms of weight in pounds i'm not sure but uh, the number i say it's true because the number is so outrageously large with 80 80 percent we carry 80 percent cells that probably it's true so i, yeah. I stick my head out and you say nailed it you nailed it all right I it. Three, three, three. You got yeah it. yeah so cool yeah that, that was from the michigan microbe project i can i'll link in the show notes so cool yeah super cool i mean everything about microbes only been really discovered in the past 30 or so years. So, you know, it's it's kind of a mystery. I mean, I, I, I didn't even know anything about it until maybe two years ago, you know? Awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's like the all the debate about um, microbiomes and how they interact and how complex they are and what they all do for us, science doesn't understand it yet. And we are just at the beginning of really un uncovering this new chapter. It's an absolute frontier. And I personally love it. My, my, my wife is a big uh, microbiologist. And she's responsible for products. So originally she comes from that domain. Her tagline on our business card is actually Bug Whisperer because she can make that all that in fermentation that others can't. So yeah, I resonate a lot with that. Well, Chris, this has been cool. absolutely amazing. So you got to tell us about what if foods, where to get it. How do we go get some probiotic BAM nut milk today. So you can find us on the East Coast, West Coast. If you have a minute, go and come out to our homepage and find the store locator uh, and click near me and you will find the closest store next to you. Big shout out end of this month, which is January of 24. You will find us in Sprouts, uh, which is obviously in about 400 stores, which is uh, a through for the what if products you will find us in other stores already we are in about 1400 altogether 1500 stores uh, throughout the united states dominantly on the coasts you will also find us on amazon where you can find uh, our noodles as well as our milk and, and uh, very happy to ship you directly from there as well as we start 24 we are busy building our region our network uh, further I think the foundation and the cornerstones with regards to our logis logistics is being in place now. The company, the organization is ready uh, to do even more of the stuff that we have already started doing. Can't wait to interact with more better believers, as we call the consumers, our better believers. What's the What If Foods website? It is What If Foods. So what if one word dash foods.com. You can find us. 
Watch us Google Bambara, you will bam nut, find us. Bam nut. No, <laughs> oh, really? like, nobody, okay. nobody else has the bam nut. That's such a great, great, uh, great word to, to own. Uh, so you heard it here. Obviously, go out to Amazon.com if you're if you're not on the East Coast, West Coast, but or otherwise go to whatif-foods.com and uh, check out where a store near you might carry bam nut milk, bam nut noodles ramen that uh super unique super interesting um and tasty so definitely check that out chris what about you where can we find you and what what else uh you're thinking about and doing on the internet you can find me on linkedin this is chris christoph langwalner you can find me on linkedin this is probably where i'm the most active you can also find me on instagram and on other places but i'm not so 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 active on on these social media channels i have my word out there on linkedin most uh, most likely and then Please do come to our homepage again and look at the blogs that we have. And your TikTok. Your TikTok was really good. And the TikTok account. Yeah, so for deeper listening and for probably background reading, our blogs are designed for that. You know, the three-minute, five-minute read. Sometimes if we do presentations, we do transcripting as well there. So for folks that are that use the 140 <laughs> characters as a teaser and want to learn more, do come to our blog. Love it. Our Love it. I would definitely say people should should follow Chris as well. Like you're you're definitely a thinker about so many of the systematic pieces of climate change, uh, social justice, uh, sustainability, business, uh, all of it. I, I really appreciate the way you think. I think it's uh, all with the optimistic view. So appreciate that as well. Thank you, Ted. I did want to say Chris was uh, gracious enough to give us some some product samples, we did some testing and. Really, honestly, love Bam Nut Milk. Can't wait to go to Sprouts to get it myself. I'd say that's that's the gateway <laughs> food uh, for me. If you if you try that, listeners, and then I really love the sweet hot seasoning one. That was incredible. I also like how you make your noodles without frying them. Right, you do it like through this like water dehydration system, which just makes them that much more healthy. So, yeah, definitely, definitely try those. Awesome. Thanks for the shout out. Yeah, of course, Chris. Incredible chatting with you, and yeah, really appreciate the time and, and good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. Your questions have definitely challenged my thinking, which I appreciate a lot. I've enjoyed the last hour or so. I can't even, I don't even know when we started. Really, really enjoyed it. And I apologize if I spoke too much and I didn't give you enough opportunity to ask questions. You're great. uh, Here I am. You're just great. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye, Chris. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. See you soon. Thanks. Bye.